Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and today I'm going to share with you a talk given by Dr. Jonathan Borkham last week. Dr. Borkham is a biologist and ethologist, that's someone who studies animal behaviour, and he's currently the Director of Animal Sentience for the Humane Society of the United States. He's written four books and is presently working on a new one about the inner lives of fish. He also initiated the Vegan T-Shirt Day to promote animal rights issues on the first Saturday of every month. Anyway, Dr. Balkum is on a speaking tour of Australia and was very recently hosted by Humane Research Australia at the Abbotsford Convent in Melbourne, where this talk was recorded. The talk is entitled Animals in Lives: Notes of a Vegan Biologist. By the way, the presentation includes PowerPoint slides that he refers to, but I think it's all pretty much self-explanatory without seeing the slides. So here we go. Thank you, Helen. Uh, Thanks to Humane Research Australia for hosting me for the second time. I gave a talk for them, I think it was 2007, last time I was here. So uh, I lived five years in New Zealand as a child. I don't know if you mentioned that. But uh, anyway, um, so I have kind of fond memories of of Down Under. But my first uh, experience of Australia was 1962 when I was only in my early 50s. So No one's laughing. Okay. Just like to see that there's a reaction. So, uh, well, you know, you're vegan, you age slowly. But uh, no, I was very young then. I don't remember very much of that. But anyway, it's really great to be back here. And um, I must say that the venue and the setting is really beautiful. Uh, I'd like to go outside, but um, we're in here. Anyway. All right. So um, I'm going to present to you some aspects about animals that I'm kind of thinking and somewhat hoping that you're not familiar with, and as well as some angles about them. Uh, There's a lot of focus on pain and suffering in our discussions of animals, which is very important. Uh, I've spent quite a lot of time focusing on the positive side of animals' lives. So the uh, introduction to my talk will be sort of broadly about our evolving relationship with animals, and I will close on that theme. But some of the intermediate stuff in the middle will be about animal virtue and about animals' capacity to feel pleasure which has, I think, very important, significant uh, moral implications. So, let's get started then. Our relationship to animals dates back at least, or the roots of that relationship date back at least 23 centuries to the time of Aristotle, whose pyramid scheme, his idea of sort of scala naturae, the natural scale, was sort of a pyramid scheme that placed humans at the top uh, but below, ab- above all the other animals, but below uh, God and the angels. Rene Descartes, 20 centuries later, really further diminished animal status by arguing that they were 
thoughtless, mindless automatons without any feelings or thoughts and therefore of no moral consequence. And to this day, these ideas are influential with animals universally being legally legally defined around the world as the property of humans. Now, I say animals in the pejorative sense. We are, of course, all in this room. Don't take offense. We are all defined biologically as animals as well. We're members of the kingdom, or as you prefer, queendom, animalia. Uh, But we do use that term animal usually to distinguish us from the others. I think that in itself is significant in our sort of need to separate ourselves from them. And to this day, these ideas are influential in terms of how we treat animals. We, we kill estimated of a 60 to 70 billion land animals every year, and an untold number of fishes, easy to forget they're individuals, numbers estimated from 250 billion to over 2 trillion, very difficult to estimate because fishes are not measured in terms of numbers of individuals, they're members, measured in terms of weight. And we kill most of them to eat them. However, we also kill many for fashion, for satisfying our scientific curiosity, and for sport and recreation. And we might characterize that kind of treatment as animals as a might-makes-right way of acting or behaving. If you have the power to do it, it's okay to do it. And might-makes-right has a really quite rich history in human behavior. Um, it's was used to justify colonialism, for instance, where usually European company, con- countries marched into other countries and, and essentially took over them. The African slave trade is another manifestation of might-makes-right way of thinking, as is the subjugation of women's rights and the denial of civ- civil rights to people of certain ethnic origins. Thankfully, these past social ills have largely been relegated to the history books. And... Um, Steven Pinker, an American psychologist, in a sweeping book from 2011 called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, he articulates a number of what he calls civilizing processes to help explain the moral progress that we see. And let me just back up a bit. I mean, these changes, the end of institutionalized slavery, the granting women the right to vote. I mean, it seems so archaic to think that we once denied them that vote. And yet people are living today who lived in my country, the United States. I don't know what year Australia passed that. I know New Zealand was the first in 1893. This is recent. So cultural change happens a lot faster than geological or evolutionary change, and that's encouraging. But let me outline some of these, uh, briefly, some of these civilizing principles that might be partly to, to account for these significant changes that we've seen. One is the rise of statehoods, democracies where leaders of countries are elected by the people as opposed to some uh, system where you have somebody by dint of birth, a monarch, for instance, who rules the country. The empowerment of women is another force that's believed to be partly to, to credit for the rise in moral awareness and the changes that, we see, that we've seen in the last um, decades and centuries. The fact that we're more of a global community, the fact that we no longer typically look at another country as a source of human power through slavery, for instance, and instead as somebody for a trading partner is a, is a positive step as well. The rise of literacy, Pinker talks about tens of percentiles increase in global literacy. And around 1900, literacy rates were, I forget the numbers, I think they were between 20, 20 and 30 percent. 
of humans in the world could read and write. Now it's in the 70s or maybe even in the 80s. So that's a, an epochal change in just a century's time. Cosmopolitanism, the fact that we are all connected in a smaller world, smaller in, this, in the sense that we are connected through the internet, for instance, and through the news, information can be spread much more quickly than it used to be. And the rise of reason, partly because of these other influences, um, we are more logical, more informed, more aware of ethical issues than we were in the past. And to go with that, and Pinker does mention this, he doesn't speak about, write about it a lot in his book, but he does talk about the, an unprecedented rise in moral concern for animals, for the other animals. I think there, we can be somewhat grateful to some historical figures also for these changes. Charles Darwin, with his idea of evolution through natural selection, which really finally was a, an idea that very clearly connected us in flesh and blood to other, other species. And a lesser known but nonetheless very significant figure, Donald Griffin, an American biologist in the 20th century, he co-discovered echolocation by bats when he was a graduate student in, at Harvard University in the late 1930s. The bats, I like to point out, had discovered it considerably uh, before that time. And, uh, but he started in the 1970s writing books about what do animals think and what do they feel. And that, I think, had a major role in getting us to where we are today, where much of the 20th century there was a taboo against asking questions about what animals think and feel, which is generally considered out of the sphere of scientific uh, worthiness to study. And uh, that changed. That's changed in the last 30, 40 years. And I think a number of influences for that, but certainly Griffin's uh, work in bringing that about played a major role. And then we have important philosophers such as Peter Singer, Australian, uh, who wrote um, Animal Liberation, published in 1975, I believe it was. And that's been very influential as sort of the manifesto of the modern animal rights movement. Probably played something of a role in the rise of uh, HRA, for instance, and, and our interest in that issue. And the American scholar, Tom Reagan, whose idea of animal rights has, has really gained a lot of ground as well. Uh, he's more of a utilitarian. He's more of a deontologist, to use the jargon. But really, there's a great deal of commonality in their views and the, the, the uh, way that's manifested in how we might treat other animals. And it's a very exciting time to be an ethologist. Ethology is the study of animal behavior. That's my field. Uh, because, thanks again to Darwin and Griffin and people like him, there's a great deal of scientific interest and more and more information coming out now about what animals think and feel. And so let me uh, go on and give you some examples of that. I'll start with virtue. I think I mentioned that I'd like to speak a bit about virtue, certainly a positive side of animals' lives and animals' nature. Traditionally, we've tended to couch and characterize wild nature as a tough, hard place. Thomas Hobbes had the phrase nasty, brutish, and short to describe life in general. And I think he was speaking for human life at that time. But certainly that's a common characterization of, uh, of nature that's been kind of routinely used in, in the past. And to the present, we think of it as a, it's a pretty rough life. And I think in a way, part of, a, part of that thinking is that it mm, makes us feel a little less guilty about it if we're, we're not, too, not, too, not too treating animals so well. You probably heard this phrase. Hands up if you heard this phrase. Yeah, most hands are up. Hands up if you've actually seen a dog eat a dog. <laughs> Not too many. Uh, it's a figure of speech, of course, but I think it's a, it's a little bit uh, of a harsh one. 
Nikolai Kropotkin, not so well known, but it was a long time ago, but a, a very important Russian biologist, and he, uh, he wrote um, quite a bit about the kinder, better side of nature and how he wanted to emphasize the important mutualisms, the plus-plus relationships that animals have with each other, that the ways that they benefit each other. And we are absolutely surrounded by these relationships. Anytime you look at a flower or a fruit or most insects, you're seeing an animal or certainly a pollinating insect, a nectar-eating insect, you're seeing an animal, you're seeing organisms that have co-evolved through a grand co-evolutionary bargain to benefit from each other's existence. Flowering plants are there to attract pollinators who come and get the nectar that the plant gives them, and in exchange for the nectar, the insect does a pollination movement, movement service by moving the pollen from one sessile plant to another. Now, I'm not saying necessarily the insects know they're doing that. That's debatable, but certainly both organisms are benefiting. That's just one example. There are many others, and I will touch on some of those. Um, this is a great book by a, a well-known American ecologist, Paul Colombo, Why Big Fierce Animals Are Rare. I forgot to get the better resolution photograph on this slide, but you can see that's a tiger. Um, There's another aspect, another angle on nature not just being cruel and harsh and mean and bloodthirsty. Large predators are rare, and there's a reason for that. A lot of energy is lost at different levels of a food chain as you go up. About 98% of the energy is lost at each level. Only about 2% makes it through. The rest is lost to heat and other dissipation in the environment. Which is why you will find that birds such as, well, this is more of a North American slide. I don't know if you get Canada geese here, but they're abundant in North America, although they were endangered at one point because of hunting. But uh, they've rebounded now through protection, and uh, they are abundant. And the earth can support a lot of them. Why? Because they're grazers. They're essentially like, um, they, they eat grass and they eat plant matter. So they're fairly low on the food chain, and nature can sustain a lot of them in comparison, in contrast to another bird of a similar size, similar weight, a bald eagle, who is near the top of the food chain, although they they're, they're do a lot of scavenging, but they're obligate meat eaters, and they're much rarer, and they were always much rarer. There's a few, far fewer hawks in the world than there are, than there are pigeons and there are a, a vegetarian or vegan animals. And goodness is adaptive. Goodness is beneficial. Uh, it behooves animals to be respectful of others because if you're not, uh, you can get into trouble and that can shorten your life. And we see evidence for this, uh, for the goodness of, and the beneficence of animals in many manifestations, such as parent-offspring relationships. This young macaque monkey carries probably on average half the genes that the parent carries, and so in a genetic, purely genetic sense, it behooves the parent to give a great deal of care for that, for that offspring. And similarly in birds with these oyster catchers, this is an adult feeding uh, his or her um, fledged chick. The most extreme examples of this kind of, uh, this kind of um, good behavior or self-sacrificial behavior, because it, it takes a sacrifice. I mean, he could eat the food himself, but he's giving it to someone else. So that is a sort of a sacrifice behavior, but it is, again, it's an investment in his young. And the most uh, extreme examples of that is in the eusocial insects, the, the bees, the ants, the uh, termites, whose workers are related to each other twice as closely genetically as we are to, to our siblings through a, an interesting genetic shift. I think it's called haplodiploidy. I forget the term. But anyway, they are more gen genetically closely related than we are to our siblings. And that seems to have manifested itself in a very self-sacrificial behavior. Ants will readily drown themselves to make a bridge so that other ants can run over a little stream and that sort of thing. 
It's not to say they're disinterested in, in getting out of that bridge and, and climbing on and moving on with their lives, but they're, they, would, they don't hesitate to, to make that self-sacrifice if it comes to that. Reciprocal altruism is the idea where sort of a social exchange where you know other individuals, you do them a favor, and the thinking is that if you do a favor to somebody who knows who you are and recognizes you and will remember you, they may return the favor in future. And this was a theory first proposed in the 1970s, but there was no evidence from it in the field until some years later when the first example was from the common vampire bat, one of three species of vampire bats, and they are obligate blood feeders, and sometimes a female vampire bat will not be able to fly out for the night to feed her young, and, um, but another bat will, will share blood, a blood meal with her, will actually regurgitate blood. Sounds a little gross to us, but uh, they'll share food with this other female, and w later when she's well, and perhaps the other one is sick, she's more likely to share blood with that other one. Uh, they know each other over long periods, and it was the first documented case of reciprocal altruism in, in an animal to fit the theory that had been proposed. And it required a, a biologist from the University of Maryland lying upside down, face up, looking into a, a, a vampire bat colony with various um, things dropping on him um, during that period. And a light, special infrared light for many hours doing that. So sometimes ethologists have to make some sacrifices of their own to bring light to these things. Prairie dogs, highly social, colonial rodents of North America. They have a lot of wild enemies such as hawks and eagles and snakes and black-footed ferrets and coyotes and domestic dogs. And they have different alarm calls for each of these. And actually, they actually have a dialect of over 100 words for, that modify alarm calls. Curiously, they even change their alarm call for a human walking through with a different colored shirt. So they have a call to indicate it's, a, it's the yellow shirt or the red shirt. That's not really understood why they do that. But it's pretty clear why they would very quickly have a new call for somebody with a gun in their hand. And that's, uh, field experiments have shown that they do that. But if you think about it, alarm calling, which is actually widespread in mammals and birds, is another self-sacrificial behavior. It's a behavior where you, the individual who's making a call, is uh, making a bit of a self-sacrifice because they're drawing attention to themselves. However, the calls are designed, quote-unquote, to be hard to locate in space, and so they nevertheless have evolved to be minimally risky, but they are nevertheless risky. But it's a nice example of another virtuous behavior that's quite widespread in social animals. And there's no reason why humans can't be virtuous as well. At our best, we're very virtuous. One of the virtuous things I like to do is bee rescue if I find a bee, such as this bumblebee who's been knocked down after a rainstorm, very often, all they need is a little feeding. Uh, just take them home, put a little sugar water on the end of a Q-tip, and offer it to the bee, and you'll see the, the um, tongue comes out. The bee fills the tanks, and then you let the bee outside. And you haven't, I haven't gone far from home when I found the bee, so the bee has a very good sense of direction, can find her way back to the colony. And it makes me feel good, too. And that's, that's actually significant. It feels good to do a good deed. You know, it is better to give than to receive, the old saying. It's nice to receive, too, but there's a, there's a meaning behind that saying. That's nature rewarding us for doing a good behavior that may actually benefit us in the future. Just one other example of a mutualism. You may have heard of this, aphids and ants. Aphids have evolved, co-evolved with ants. And uh, in return for a police service where the ants provide protection to these rather vulnerable little sweet little insects, the aphids feed them with uh, essentially candy, honeydew it's called. It's sugar water that they squeeze out of their butts. 
And, uh, and the ants love it. They go crazy for that stuff. It's like, it's like liquor for them. So uh, everybody's happy and everybody's a little safer for it. It feels good to be nice. And we see this manifested in the way animals behave, the way they show deference for each other. It's not that they're, they're always nice to each other. You do see plenty of violence in primate societies. But most of the time, for every violent act, you're going to see countless uh, good acts, beneficent acts, friendly acts. They may be subtle, they may be small, they may be fleeting, but they're there if you watch for them. And chimpanzees, I mean, certainly animals that have uh, long-lived, highly social groups, you see more of this sort of behavior. And you see it in birds, too. These are not just three finches. They are three finches who know each other. And will, this one will remember the nice deed that these two were doing later and more likely to preen them back. It's called allopreening, preening another. <clears throat> if you've read any Jane Goodall, you will be under the impression, because that's what Jane observed in her studies of chimpanzees, that these are... Mm, males are not particularly involved in child rearing. It's a promiscuous mating society, so that's one explanation for why they may not be very involved in that. They don't know their dad. And so why invest in who, what may be somebody else's child? Well, a recent study from, I think it was um, parts of Guinea, a population of chimpanzees documented 18 adoptions where an adult chimpanzee adopted an orphaned young one. That's a big investment of time and energy. And nine of the 18 adopters were males. So this very much flies in the face of the traditional disinterested male chimpanzee when it comes to raising young. I want to talk a little bit about animal minds, animal cognition. Just a few examples. I don't have a video to show you this, but if, you've, if you, you can watch YouTube videos of Ayumu, for example. This is Ayumu, A-Y-U-M-U, a chimpanzee at a research center in, in Japan. They don't do vivisection there, but they do do some cognitive studies. And uh, he's particularly good, but chimpanzees have been found to be exceptionally good at short-term spatial memory. They're probably good at long-term spatial memory as well, but certainly this particular puzzle where they're presented with numbers from 1 to 9 that flash on the screen for just a second and then they're replaced by white rectangles, they can point to the rectangles in the orders 1 to 9 pretty much every time if they only get a second. If they get one-fifth of a second, about that long, they can, they can get it about 90% of the time, which is mind-blowingly good. Uh, we can only get, we might get to two or three, the number's two or three, if we had that little bit of time. We simply cannot do it. So it's an example of a cognitive skill that they do better, much better than we do. It's up, to, it's up in the air as to why they're so good at that. There's theories as to why they may be good at that. I, when I visit schools, I like to show the video because these kids are just blown away by what they're seeing. And there's no, there's no ego. The chimpanzee isn't proud of him or herself for doing this. Uh, they're just looking for the little treat they get. They only do it for half an hour, and then they get bored of, the, bored of the game. But they're really exceptionally good at it. So we can't assume that we're always more cognitively skilled, mentally skilled, than other animals. Self-recognition is thought to be a, a very high-level cognitive ability or a certain type of awareness, and it's been shown in great apes and cetaceans, dolphins and whales, as well as... Um, Elephants, but it had not been shown in any birds until 2008 when a research team actually did some studies with the magpies. And the way you test for self-awareness is you put a mark on the animal, here the yellow dot, where the animal cannot see it on him or herself, and then you put them in front of a mirror. And if they try to attack the mirror or they look behind the mirror or do a threats display, it suggests that they don't know it's themselves. But if they try to remove the dot, it, it implies, it indicates that they know they're looking at themselves. 
and uh, the magpies, a very small study, but the magpies would try to remove the yellow dot, but they would not try to remove the black dot, which was the sample that shows it's not that they just feel it there. But what about groups like reptiles and fish? I'm working on a book on fish because there's been some really neat stuff about them, and the next couple of slides mention fish. But um, there's a great book called Dragon Songs by a biologist, a colleague of mine, who studied all 28-odd species of crocodilians around the world. And um, one of the things he's discovered is tool use by crocodiles. They will float sticks, and they will carry them on their noses to heron rookeries. And then they will sink below the surface, so the sticks will be floating on the water. And herons build their nests out of sticks, and sticks are in short supply and a very valuable commodity at nesting season, and you can probably complete the story. It's not a very pretty ending for the heron. Uh, but it's a very sophisticated example of tool use because it's location-specific and it's time-specific. Herons do not nest year-round, and they don't nest willy-nilly in any location. They have a particular time of year and location, and that's the only time and place where these crocodiles do this. So it's, um, it's both time and location-specific. That's considered also a higher level of cognition than if it was just any old time or place. We also have tool use in fish. Now, fish don't have any limbs or fingers to manipulate things. Most animals don't. And yet, despite those limitations, they will use tools. This particular wrasse has blown water onto the sand to expose the location of a clam, has picked up the clam in the mouth and swam very deliberately to a particular shell, a particular rock nearby. It's a rock that is suitable for this purpose of being used as an anvil to repeatedly bash the clam against the rock with a series of well-coordinated head flicks and releases to open the clam and get at the contents inside. So it's, a, it's an example of planning and tool use in a fish. <clears throat> Here's another fish, a little frilfin goby that lives in intertidal zones, the little rock pools when the tide goes out. Um, sometimes they have cause to want to jump to a neighboring tide pool when, say, it's drying up or a heron lands nearby and the heron wants to catch the fish. How do they know which way to jump? They don't sky hop. They don't jump up looking around. They have it memorized. They've memorized the tide pools. Well, how do they do that? Well, they do it at high tide. When the water is up, they swim over, and in one trial, they can learn the topography of these tide pools and translate that aerial view into a horizontal view at low tide. So it's an example of a cognitive skill that's quite remarkable for a very humble little fish. And it's a good example of how, I'm not suggesting these fish are Einsteins, but if it's important for survival over eons of time, they will get good at it. They will become good at it. Small brains can do amazing things. And we tend to be a bit caught up in how big the brain is. It's not necessarily a prediction of intelligence or cognitive skill. What about feelings, emotions in particular? Studies of baboons find that a baboon mother who loses an infant to predation or illness shows physiological and behavioral changes that are much like what women show when they lose an infant. We know it's a a grievous loss, a terribly heartfelt loss. And uh, that's manifested through a, a significant rise in glucocorticoid hormones for about a month after the loss, and then they gradually subside back to baseline levels. And also our behavior changes. We tend to send flowers or, or cards or just express sympathy. We, we rally around. We, we sort of show moral support that way. 
There's no evidence that the baboons send cards or flowers, but they do show an increase when they lose a young, an offspring. Mother baboons will show a significant shift in their social behavior. They groom more and they receive more grooming, and their glucocorticoid levels in their bloodstream also goes up for about a month. That can be measured easily in the feces of them in the wild, so you don't have to measure it invasively, which stresses them and is a, is a confound. And, um, a study of birds shows an interesting uh, psychological phenomenon, emotional phenomenon. Caged birds become pessimistic. So if starlings are kept in a very small little cage for three days, they become much less likely to try something with an uncertain outcome. This is known in human studies. If we're depressed or feeling blue, we're much, more, much less likely to try something with, a, with an uncertain outcome than we are if we're feeling happy and, well, optimistic. And that's been shown in starlings and pigs and rats and some other animals. Once again, what about fish? Uh, I don't know if anyone's done this, the cognitive bias study. That's the jargon for these studies showing optimism and pessimism. But a study of surgeon fish found that when they are stressed, I think the way they stressed them was they put them in a, a tank with a very low level of water, just enough to cover their bodies for about 30 minutes. That's stressful for a fish. And you can measure that stress. Their, their hormone levels change. The stress hormones go up, cortisol. And then if you put the fish in a tank with, the option, with, an, with an option to sit next to and rub up against a wand, a little wand that was designed like a cleaner fish, and I'll touch on cleaner fishes in a short while, uh, the fish would swim up and get a massage from this, from this cleaner fish, this moving wand. And um, if it was a stationary one that wasn't moving at all, the fish ignored it, didn't spend any time next to it. So the fish appears to be looking for the massage to get stress relief. That's the interpretation. I think it's a pretty reasonable one, but it's not one we would have probably thought that fish were, had the wherewithal to do. I mentioned I wanted to talk about pleasure, and I will. And... Uh, uh, so there's many ways that animals can get pleasure. Food is perhaps the least controversial. If you don't eat food and you're an animal, you're not going to live for very long. So you might expect that nature endows us with a great deal of motivation and interest in getting fed. And if you had any of those canapes, you probably enjoyed them. Uh, I certainly did. And uh, food is rewarding to us. Our bodies say, good job, you did a good thing, you ate some food, that's great. And um, same thing for piglets and uh, most other animals who need to eat to survive. And here's the, a nice illustration of this mutualism between fruiting plants and animals. This uh, cedar waxwing eats the fruit, gets a nice nutritional reward, sees the nice bright colors to lure, lure him or her in, and then carries the seeds somewhere else to dump them out, usually in a convenient package of fertilizer, where the seeds will germinate into new plants, hopefully. And from the plant's perspective, that's very adaptive because the seeds have been moved somewhere else where they don't have to compete for the parent plant for light and water and, uh, and uh, nutrients in the soil. So everybody benefits. It's a classic mutualism. And it's built around the pleasure and the reward of food. Because just one other point, I don't think the bird is thinking about spreading seeds. I don't think that's sort of the cognitive intention of the bird. The bird is simply wants to have the nice fruit. But it just happens that by doing that, the bird is helping the, the plant to spread seeds somewhere else. Play is something we can usually recognize in an animal. Uh, it's buoyant. We can, we can see the way the animal behaves, that it's playful behavior. It's very common, particularly in young animals. Play is adaptive, 
for building physical strength and learning the important survival skills, running away or catching somebody else. Hence, predators and prey animals spend a lot of time chasing and wrestling often when they're young. It's important practice for later survival skills. Learning social behavior, how to get along with others, how to behave politely and correctly in society is another function of play. Knowing how not to bite too hard, knowing how hard a bite is going to hurt. But I'm pretty sure that a lamb like this is not thinking about Darwinian fitness when they play. They're not thinking about, oh, yeah, I better do this. I better jump around. It's going to make me stronger so I can get away from that wolf one day. Uh, they play for the just instant joy that it brings. And it's the same reason we play as well. We don't really think about the adaptive basis for most of these things, even though we can reflect on it. We simply do it because our bodies reward ourselves for it. <clears throat> I wanted to warn you about the sex slide. But certainly, certainly animals are highly motivated to engage in sex at the right time of year. And uh, there's physiological studies on that that I describe briefly in one of my books. But um, sex is another source of pleasure. And if you think about it, it's not vital for survival. But it is absolutely indispensable for genetic survival in the sense of passing on genes to the next generation. So once again, nature sees to it that we're highly motivated. What about comfort? If we're hot... It feels nice to get cool. If we're cold, it doesn't feel nice to get colder. It feels bad. Our bodies are saying, yeah, bad idea. Go the other way. Try to get into a warm space. And our bodies reward us for getting ourselves back towards our set level, our stable homeostatic level. And uh, there are many ways that animals have of doing this. Certainly the sun is a good source of comfort if you're chilly. And uh, chickens will, and other birds will do this behavior where they, they lift the wing and expose as much of their body surface to the sun as they can. This is on an animal sanctuary I volunteer at near where I live in, in Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. Yes, animals do practice yoga. They, this one, uh, this ground squirrel is doing a sun salutation, but quite seriously, the squirrel is stretching before becoming active. He or she has probably been sleeping for a while, maybe even hibernating, and it's good to get the blood flow in. That's why athletes stretch. It's, you're less likely to sustain injury, and it's just as useful for them as it is to us. And it feels nice to do it. Stretching feels good. It's, again, it's our body's way of rewarding us for doing an adaptive behavior. Uh, being in a social group makes us feel more secure. Uh, whether this is really a pleasure, I don't know, but these uh, young Lions who've just seen a couple of adult lions nearby, uh, something that they would be normally very upset and nervous about. They are nervous, but you can see they're glad to be in each other's company. I think this photo really nicely captures the sense of security we can have when we're feeling a little bit uh, afraid of something. You will not find the word love in the index of most biology textbooks, but we should expect feelings of love to evolve in animals who need, for instance, to work together to properly raise their young young who will have genes for loving feelings and um, that's certainly probably the basis for why we feel love it's very important we feel love as, a as to help us connect and care for for instance our children or each other humor not something that's typically studied by biologists there's a lot of anecdotes certainly from captive primates such as gorillas uh, chimpanzees um, where they will pay play physical pranks such as running and then suddenly stopping and laughing when the uh, keeper keeps running and is too slow to stop. Uh, also wordplay from primates who've been taught language through symbols or through sign language. Uh, uh, little wordplays like um, giving a, a straw to a, a, a gorilla 
and you know, make a joke, and the gorilla, Coco the gorilla in this case, put the straw in her nose and said, thirsty elephant, for instance. So little word plays like that. Anecdotal, but they're, they're telling examples. Celebration, I don't know, does it feel good? It's kind of fun, and I like the way prairie dogs celebrate the return of an adult when they've been away. This is the adult right in the middle here, and these ones are all giving the sort of greeting ceremony for the return of the adult. Sometimes they actually fall over and backwards in, in their enthusiasm. What about aesthetic pleasure? This is something I don't know if any biologist has studied, but um, certainly the, the grandeur, the splendor, the extravagance of a peacock and many other birds and some other creatures who are very brightly colored. It's not for us. I mean, we, we love it. We love to look at it. It's beautiful, but it didn't evolve to, to benefit us. It evolved for those choosy peahens who over generations have driven this, this wildly runaway sexual selection uh, uh, very extravagant, very expensive to produce, and this is one of the theories as to why this sort of thing has, has evolved. If females are choosing males with longer, showier feathers, then over evolutionary time, males who have longer, showier feathers will tend to have more representation of their genes for longer, showier feathers in the next generation. However, there are checks and balances. There's only so long a tail you want to be carrying around. They're heavy, they're, they make you more vulnerable to predation. And, there's, uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's thought to be probably effective is because it's also an advertisement for fitness. It's a way of saying, look, I am so good at surviving that I can afford to have this extravagance. Uh, the predator still can't catch me. And I know where to get the food. I'm, I, I'm a good survivor. So it's sort of an advertisement for uh, evolutionary fitness, to use the word in a, in a loose term, a different, slightly different word than the athletic fit, fitness we tend to talk about. This is a fish illustration of that, uh, that, I should say. This is a fish example. This, these um, eight, six-foot-wide mandala-type things were found on the sand about 80 feet deep off the coast of, southern coast of, of Japan just a few years ago. It was a bit of a mystery what they were, and the diver, underwater photographer, spent some time there, and finally, I wish I had a picture of this. I don't think I do. Finally, this little pufferfish, little four-inch pufferfish showed up, and he watched them as they worked on these, uh, these structures. They spend about a day making them by just swimming in a, in a very, uh, with a, wiggling their bodies and their fins in a certain way. And uh, it's, it's to lure in and attract uh, a female for mating. And uh, purely coincidence that it resembles a vegan cheesecake that I made at my uh, company <laughs> holiday party a couple of years ago. Just wanted to make, make sure you knew that was just coincidence. I like this slide because it points out something that we often forget or don't think about in terms of the quality of life for animals. Well, the people in this room might because you have a strong moral sense about that animals be treated justly. Uh, but that's freedom. In fact, I just met the photographer a couple of weeks ago at a conference uh, who took this. And I said, I really love that photo of the kit fox bounding across a field. And I said, I, I put it in a book on pleasure because to me it speaks to freedom, the importance of freedom. And I think perhaps animals are not thinking about their freedom when they have it, uh, but I bet they are when they don't have it. They would like to be out of that cage. I did want to talk a little bit about touch, which is a, a basis of a lot of pleasure, and it's one that's overlooked. I might like to try and write a book about animal touch one day. There's so many great examples. If you've been around cats or dogs, you know how much they love a chin rub or certain parts of the body they love to get massaged. And certainly, once again, alloprening, long-lived social birds, lots of macaws and the parrots you find here in Australia, they spend a lot of time preening each other, and they know who, each other, who they are as individuals, and they remember the favors for future reference. And studies of primates show that they do very poorly if they are not given the touch um, of the massage when they're little or at any age. Grooming is a very important part of their life. 
Some animals have built-in back scratchers, <laughs> a very handy thing. A series of studies on rats show that they love to be tickled. They actually make 50 kilohertz chirps, which are associated with positive affect when they're being tickled in the belly. It shows that they will run to the hand to be tickled on the belly four times as quickly as if they're only expecting to be petted on the neck. They like both, but they run to be, to be tickled in the belly, and they make seven times as many uh, of these ultrasonic chirps. Scientists like to measure things, so they like to have exact numbers of these phenomena. But a series of papers were studied, published on this by an American neuroscientist named Jakob Panksepp, and uh, he's actually on our editorial board of a new journal we just started called Animal Sentience, the first journal, first scholarly peer-reviewed journal about animals' feelings. So I think that's also a sign of pro pro progress. Touch, I believe, drives this kind of a mutualism, which is a fascinating one, and I devote a whole chapter to it uh, in my upcoming book on fish, and that is cleaner client mutualisms. They generally occur on reefs, although there are some other habitats where they happen, and they involve client fish lining up to wait their turn to be serviced by cleaner fish. There's a picture of a client fish here, the pup, map puffer fish, the large one, and there's a pair of cleaner wrasses working together to pluck over the surface of this very happy, contented map pufferfish who is spreading the opercula to allow access for this little fish to get into the, into the um, gills, and they'll open their mouths, and these fishes will swim in with complete impunity. You don't eat your business partner, so they never eat their cleaners. Uh, but it is a bit Machiavellian. Um, let me just explain what's going on here. So these guys are doing the cleaning service. They're removing parasites, algae, basically unwanted things on the surface of the fish. And the, they're getting food for doing that, of course. They can eat that stuff. Uh, the client fish is getting a, a spa treatment, a nice, nice massage and cleansing. Parasites can be a real issue in some habitats for fish. So it's, it's definitely a significant benefit, and some clients will visit their cleaners, and I, I mean their cleaners because they're very specific about who they go to, dozens of times a day. Cleaners are very busy. An average of 2,997 cleanings was, the, was measured from one particular study in one area of a reef. So these guys are working uh, many, many hours during the daylight to clean many clients. And the clients know who they are, and the cleaners know who they are, and it does get Machiavellian because some cleaners do better jobs than others. And some fishes actually mimic these cleaners and look like them, but they're actually not. They're a different species. They've got sharp teeth, and they will bite a piece of fin off or do something other uh, that they shouldn't do when uh, the opportunity arises. The client is usually very angry and chases the, uh, the, the bad fish off, but it's all planned, and it works out that way. And, uh, but because of that, other fish, other potential clients are watching they monitor cleaner fish behavior. They are looking to see how good a job they do. And if they screw up or if they take more off, bite off more than they should, should chew, um, they're less likely to get that client as a, as, a, as a paying customer, so to speak, paying through the food that they offer. The, one of the ways these cleaners will cheat is to bite mucus off. You know, if you've handled a fish, you know they're slimy. Well, they're slimy because that layer of mucus provides a nice protective layer. It's a very, and it's apparently a very nutritionally packed and so it's very desirable for these cleaners, and they know it, but they know that they're going to get in trouble, so it's costly. So what happens is, well, by measuring these behaviors, mucus nipping is much more likely to happen if there are no other clients around. If no one's watching, uh, it's sort of like the cleaner can get away with it a little bit more. 
The clients, for their part, form image scores, quote-unquote image scores. That's the phrase used in these peer-reviewed scholarly journal papers. Image scores essentially keeping accounts of the quality of cleaning that cleaners do. So they're literally keeping and um, building a score, if you like, a score sheet of cleaners over time. So it's a very complicated system. There are new papers coming out on this, on this uh, complicated phenomenon every month. Uh, it's fascinating. My book is already out of date. It hasn't even been published yet because there'll be tons of studies on this that'll come to light between now and when it comes out in June. And it's that relationship that probably explains things like this. Larry, who, that's, his, that's what he's been named. I doubt he calls himself that, but he's a bohemian, or I should say Bahamian. Bahamian? He's bohemian too. He's a, a grouper fish. Uh, in a particular area of a reef off Florida, and uh, this author, friend of mine, knows, knows Larry, and will go and pet him, and he'll come up to be petted. She's not removing parasites or anything like that, although she also doesn't mucus nip, so she, he, he appears to really like the, the treatment that he gets from, from, the, from Larry, uh, from her, I should say. And there's other examples of this kind of behavior, this mutualism uh, food for spa treatment service, hippos and various fish in some freshwater springs in parts of, parts of Kenya, um, the hippos come into the water in the morning after spending the, land on, the night on land foraging and they open their jaws when these fishes arrive on cue and they spread their legs and splay their toes and everybody has a feed and the hippos are very happy. They often drift off into a blissful sleep while this is happening. Here's an even more bizarre example, a more obscure example. Warthogs get um, spa treatments from colonies of banded mongooses in parts of Africa. Exactly the same phenomenon. The warthogs are getting a nice, uh, nice massage, body rub, and the mongooses are having a fun little uh, find the next parasite uh, game. Feral dogs in parts of northwestern India have been hanging out with langur monkeys for a long time. The dog, as you can see here, gets a nice grooming service, probably some parasite removal, and I suspect the, the langurs benefit from having a predator in their midst, having somebody with sharp teeth and another pair of eyes and a good nose. Uh, so once again, it's a mutualism. <clears throat> so to sum up to this point of my four-hour lecture, doing very well on time. I've got three and a quarter hours still. Uh, no, I'll be done soon. Um, if animals can feel pleasure, if they can feel good, I mentioned at the beginning that I think it has important moral implications. One is that life has intrinsic value. This is a sort of philosophical phrase. So there's sort of utilitarian value. The cow has value to the farmer who wants to make money off the milk or the meat, say. But um, the cow has intrinsic value in that she enjoys her life. She likes to wander around the pasture, find grass, eat some blackberries, and raise her calf if she's allowed to. So that's intrinsic value, value to oneself. We can certainly relate to that. And if you can enjoy things, you have a quality of life. There's a quality of life can be good or bad. Days can go better than others. And life is worth living. And it follows that death is harmful. If life is worth living, death is harmful. And that's not a complex idea to us. Murder is a heinous crime because, well, why is it a heinous crime? It's because you've deprived the victim of the opportunity to live and enjoy life. It's not because you've taken away their future pains and suffering. It's because you've taken away their opportunity to have a meaningful, enjoyable, pleasurable life. And the dog is wagging his or her tail to uh, support my point there. <laughs> Appreciate the support. Uh, now, I did. T Helen asked me to speak a little bit about primates in research. I don't do much work on primates in research, but I thought I would just present to you a little bit of information that I've gleaned from colleagues uh, about the status of primate research in, in the United States and, and elsewhere. And so I'll just give a few slides about that. In the United States, 
United States is the world's largest user of primates in vivisection, and the U.S. is a huge user. It uses five times as many primates as are used in the entire European Union. Um, that's not to congratulate the European Union. Uh, in my opinion, and I suspect the opinion of most, if not everybody here, we shouldn't be using any, but uh, they are still used. And these are the numbers for the United States for primates in research. A lot of them. And so about 45,000 are used strictly for breeding. The remaining, what is it, 60,000 are used in research experiments themselves or testing. And the U.S. imports a lot of these animals. They're animals who start out in the wild. They start out in that uh, relatively uh, blissful environment that they were supposed to be living in, and then they get uh, go into the horror of captivity and shipment and then ending up in labs. Awful thing to happen to an animal. Nevertheless, there are signs of progress. Um, Harvard University's WIS Institute has, and this is progress in terms of alternatives and, d and different approaches to doing research. And uh, there's this wonderful area of research called human on a chip and or organ on a chip. And it's uh, sort of um, ways to simulate body tissues and their functioning that are more advanced than we've done in the past. And essentially they're finding that tissues that are done this way, quote-unquote tissues, respond to drugs and other perturbations in a biologically meaningful way as the whole body will, will react. And the common old argument of those who defend vivisection is that, well, it's not the whole animal, um, uh, therefore you're not really getting a, a, proper, a proper facsimile of what would happen in, in the real world. The response, the rebuttal to that from the sectors is, well, you're working with a rat. That's not a human. So it's a whole rat, but it's not, it's not the same, not the right species. And, and that's borne out by the failure of so much animal research to really advance medicine and our understanding. This is somebody else's borrowed slide. I, I don't like to have so much text on a slide, but I'll just point out some highlights. So here's an example of an organ on a chip. And part of what makes these things exciting and, and, and effective is that you can now introduce force dynamics. You can introduce pulsating. Um, the movements that these tissues are subjected to in real life, and that seems to make a huge difference in how they respond. Just to illustrate the amount of money that's being invested in this stuff, these, uh, Harvard is not the only school doing this. There's a number of other labs around the country and around the world working on this on-a-chip technology, and they're getting some very real funding. And funding is a reflection of the promise and the effectiveness of the approach. And one of the great things about this approach, these approaches, this is so much more efficient, 10 million to a billion times faster than using an animal model, quote unquote. So you can get information from these systems so much faster and it's much more productive in that regard. This is just a, a this figure, not just for primate research, this is all animal research, just showing that there actually has been a decline uh, worldwide in total animal research in recent years. This is data from different countries, UK, USA, the Netherlands, normalized to one. So the actual numbers are different for the three lines, but if you normalize them all with not one being the maximum that they've ever used, it's actually the numbers have been dropping since the, around 1980. And after years of increasing numbers, we now see slight declines in primate use in research and testing. And I mentioned Harvard University, uh, a little example of progress in primate research. Harvard University is shutting down its primate research center. The University of Oklahoma is ending its baboon research, one of the major uses of baboons in vivisection, uh, due to changes in research priorities, funding shortages, and a history of animal welfare uh, problems. <clears throat> 
I actually got an invitation from a journal editor a couple of years ago, last year actually, to review a paper in a field that wasn't really my field. And I told the editor, I said, look, I'll review it if you want, but it's not, and I won't give it a very favorable review. It was a vivisection paper. Um, and, um, and I said, I don't think I'm really particularly well qualified to review a paper in this field. He said, I want you to review it because I want to hear, we want to have in writing the, the views of somebody who doesn't think that animals should be used for this. And uh, I was pleased to see that happening because we need dialogue, we need discourse in this issue. And I was glad that my voice got to be uh, heard in, in that process. That's peer review, which mostly happens behind the scenes. And I just did want to mention a, a collaboration between my organization, Humane Society International. I, I work under the umbrella of the Humane Society of the United States and HRA, its partnership, Be Cruelty Free Australia campaign. There are now over 30 countries that are not, what is the title of this, uh, that have instituted cosmetic testing bans. This is an area, this is one of the sort of so-called low-hanging fruit, one of the more winnable issues in vivisection, ending the use of animals to test cosmetics. And over 30 countries have done that. Unfortunately, Australia and U.S. are not among them, and thanks to HRA campaigning to do that in, in Australia, we have campaigns going on to try and end that in the U.S., and typically, I think this is, a, this is for Australia, there's about an 85% public opposition to this. You do surveys, people don't think that we should be harming animals to test things that we're going to put on for our own vanity. I'm hopeful that that ethic will extend to all kinds of uses of animals in research. We should not be taking their lives and doing as we will with them. That's back into the might makes right way of thinking that I talked about earlier. And another, I think, very significant sign of progress, the, um, a judge, a U.S. Supreme Court judge, actually not U.S. Supreme Court, New York State Supreme Court judge, Barbara Jaffe, back in April of this year, uh, ruled that uh, a couple of chimpanzees who'd been imprisoned and used in vivisection at one of the American universities in that state uh, ruled that they had the right to be um, represented by lawyers to essentially, it was a step towards having legal standing, um, it's since been not carried to the next level, but it was the first time that a judge has made that kind of a proclamation. It's the beginnings of some signs of legal change for the legal status of animals, where that slide at the very beginning of the dog behind the fence, where animals have been universally throughout history regarded as, defined as the legal property of humans, that bastion is beginning to be broken down. And that's very significant, very exciting. The group leading that, that charge on that, who prepared the documentation to file that case, is preparing a bunch of other cases. Uh, Non-Human Rights Project, I believe, is the name of it. Steve Wise is the American lawyer who's spearheading that. He's been preparing this for over 20 years, and now it's beginning to come to light. So it's an exciting, very interesting time for the legal status of animals. Just finish up with the, this word sentience. I've got a few more slides. Uh, that'll take me to an hour, and that will be the end of my talk. Not going four hours. Uh, sentience, I like to call it as the bedrock of ethics. The reason that we have moral systems is that others have lives that matter. Others can feel good or bad. They can have good days and bad days. Things can go wrong for them, and that means we have a duty to respect or consider their needs, their, cons their considerations in our own behavior towards them. And these are concepts that we understand, the question is how far do we apply it? Who do we apply it to? Just humans, humans and chimps, or beyond that? And every animal who is sentient, that is, they can feel good or bad, they have consciousness, some level of conscious awareness, they have an interest in minimizing pain, in maximizing pleasure, and avoiding death. 
just very basic principles that follow from being sentient. And it's really quite a sobering thing to be aware of that there's no reason why a more intelligent animal necessarily can feel pain more acutely than a less intelligent animal. It doesn't map on pain and sentience don't map on intelligence immediately. There's certainly correlations there, but um, the point of this thing is that just because we may deem ourselves smarter than a dog, although I think the opinions may vary in the room, uh, doesn't mean that our pain is any more acutely felt than the dog's pain. And then, nevertheless, we are very fickle in how we define animals, how we categorize them. You know, the animal on the right has a much higher social status in, in much of the world than the animal on the left, even though biologically they're very similar. Of course, in some parts of the world, the animal on the right is eaten, and the one on the left is regarded as sacred. So it depends on where you are, of course. We are quite, as I say, fickle in how we define animals. But as I said at the beginning, cultural change is much faster than geological change, and we can change our ways very quickly, and I find that very exciting. Here's a couple of illustrations. In 1985, there were only four U.S. states, these are the ones with a little cat, who had felony cruelty laws, where cruelty to animals was a felony as opposed to, say, a misdemeanor crime. How felony much more seriously treated. And here is the numbers for 2015, 30 years later. All 50 of the 50 U.S. states now have felony cruelty laws. South Dakota was the very last one last year uh, enacted that legislation. So um, I think that's a very quantifiable measure of progress in our moral awareness and treatment of animals. More than a thousand pieces of pro-animal legislation have been passed in the United States since 2004. I actually emailed a colleague today to confirm what I suspect, which is that that's probably more than the entire history of pro-animal legislation before that time. So that's an indication of a very rapidly accelerating awareness of animal cruelty, animal needs to stem animal cruelty and to treat animals more justly than in the past. And I love what Anne Frank said about making change, that we don't have to wait a single moment, we can do it immediately. And uh, the pig at the diner in here maybe needs to work on it a little bit, but uh, I like to show this slide because it sort of illustrates the, um, the fact that we can make choices and making personal choices and what we eat back to that figure 98% that I showed at the beginning of the talk, is a very significant uh, decision we can all make in terms of how we can affect animals. And I do like to point out to my students when I teach it, when I give a talk at a school, that you don't have to eat muscle to build it. <laughs> uh, the biggest, strongest land animals are raw food vegans. And um, this whole thing about protein is a bit of a, a, bit of a, a myth. And, uh, we don't need to be pursuing protein than we think we are. We eat protein in everything we eat. And lastly, karma. I think what goes around comes around. I think uh, when I look ahead and I think about a future society, I'm hopeful that we will have a society that respects the basic integrity and rights of other animals. And that will not just be a better society for animals, it'll be a better society for us uh, because it'll be a more compassionate uh, society and that's good for everybody. And I've spoken long enough. Thanks for listening. You're tuned to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, and this is Freedom of Species. You've just heard a presentation given by Dr. Jonathan Balkum at the Abbotsford Convent last week at an event held by Humane Research Australia. Before I go, I just want to tell you about two events that are coming up. The annual WEAC event is on again at Ceres 
on the afternoon of Sunday, the 15th of November. WEAC stands for World Events Ending Animal Cruelty, and it's an excellent day of delicious food, cakes, boutique beer, music, speakers, cooking demonstrations, and heaps and heaps of stalls. So I hope to see you at that one. Details are on the Facebook page, WEAC 2015. And in Sydney CBD... Greens MP Lee Rhiannon is hosting an action in the Pitt Street Mall to call an end to animal cruelty in cosmetics. That's on Saturday the 14th of November at 10am. Details, again, are on Facebook. That's all I've got. You can get in touch with us by email via our email address info at freedomofspecies.org or at our Facebook page or even via Twitter. Many thanks to Dr Jonathan Borkham and also to Hannah and Helen of Humane Research Australia. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.